reading comes from Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 3. Coasts and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Will you pray with me? Father, we are too often guilty of losing sight of your glory. Thank you for the gift of your word and that in Jesus we can see the promise to your people fulfilled. May you give Jeff words that teach rightly. May you give us humble hearts to receive teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. Good morning. For those of you who did not get the memo today, today is flannel day. <laughs> I've seen a lot of flannel this week. Got a little cooler. Uh, we're continuing in our series. If you have your Bible, I hope you do. I hope every week you bring your Bible, iPad, iPhone, or a paper Bible. That's sufficient as well. Um, but before we go back to the 11th century BC, I want to take you back to the 17th century talk to you about uh, just for a few minutes about a man named William Wilberforce. In the 18th century, William Wilberforce was a politician. He was a philanthropist and also eventually a Christian minister. And his transformation from a parliamentarian and a worldly socialite to a compassionate servant of God and a tireless advocate for justice was nothing short of remarkable. It was a time when the English and American economies relied heavily on the slave trade. Wilberforce uh, had a sudden awakening, a personal awakening. He was struck from a, by a bolt from beyond the blue, giving him clarity of purpose. He knew that he must be God's instrument to stop this scourge of slavery in Great Britain. In a fiery speech before Parliament, which you can look up online, it's, there are two versions of it. Uh, because the original speech, uh, the historians do not have. What they have is uh, two different reporters who recorded the speech. And they're somewhat different, but mostly the same. And this is what he said. A trade founded in iniquity and carried on as this was must be abolished. Let the policy be what it might. Let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest till I had effected slavery's abolition. And despite fierce opposition from those who profited from slavery, despite a long haul, a long period of time seeing this happen, his unwavering sense of justice and faith in God led him to an inspiring but difficult journey to change hearts and minds in his country. And it worked. It worked. Eventually, the British Parliament passed the abolition of the Slave Trade Act in 1807. Again, in 1833, they reaffirmed it. And the U.S., was soon to follow suit, <clears throat> 1808 and 1860. Now, these were the first countries in the history of the world, note that, in the history of humanity to abolish human slavery by law. Sure, we have a checkered past with slavery, and it's shameful, but we must also remember that our nations, the, the UK and America were the first nations in the history of the world to abolish slavery by common law. 
And so today we're in 1 Samuel chapter 3. What does that have to do with Samuel? Well, just as Wilberforce experienced a sudden, unexpected revelation of purpose, Samuel too will come to that same kind of clear, divine calling to reform Israel. Much like Wilberforce's persistent effort that spanned many years before achieving success, Samuel's calling heralds a new era, but it will take some time for him to become the man that God has called him to be and anointed him to be and for the nation to experience the reforms that they need. In the same way that Wilberforce's efforts, uh, efforts would change the political landscape forever, so too will Samuel's leadership leave an indelible mark. He will leave Israel with enduring, enduring promise. Let's pick up the story in verse 1. The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. Now remember, Eli is the high priest According to last week's sermon, according to the last week's passage, he has allowed his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to become corrupt leaders, and now God is going to judge Eli. But in, in this chapter, he's going to call Samuel. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and prophetic visions were not widespread. One day, one day Eli, whose eyesight was failing, was lying in his usual place on his cot. Before uh, the lamp of God had gone out, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord. That is the tabernacle, where the ark of God was located. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. I didn't call you, Eli replied. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Once again, the Lord called Samuel. So Samuel got up, and he went to Eli, and he said, Here I am. You called me. I didn't call you, my son, he replied. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not know the Lord because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Once again, for the third time, the Lord called Samuel. He got up, went to Eli, and said, Here I am. I know you called me. Then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the boy. He told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you again... Say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came, stood there, and called as he did before. Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel responded, speak, for your servant is listening. And I think we take a few things away from this passage today. The first truth that we learn is that God's presence resides wherever his word is abundant. God's presence resides wherever his word is abundant, is found in abundance. Now it says in verse one, notice carefully, that in those days the word of the Lord was rare. And prophetic visions, prophetic visions were not widespread. And the general principle that scripture teaches is that spiritual revival begins in the written and the living word. Where God's word abounds, God abides. And we experience the fullness of his presence. Now we're not talking here about the omnipresence of the Lord. Do you know what that is? The omnipresence is just the Christian, Judeo-Christian doctrine that there is nowhere where God is not. God is everywhere all at once. God is ever omnipresent. But here we are talking about the manifest presence of the Lord, as in the temple and the Shekinah glory and God's outpoured presence on his people. 
And, and I'll just give you an illustration, a personal illustration of this point from, from this last week. Now, normally, for those of you who do not know this, I am kind of a nerd. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nerd. I, I spend almost all of my time educating myself. In my free time, when I don't have to think about something I have to think about, I, I, I do a lot of thinking. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> and uh, so normally the way I prepare sermons is I sit down and I, I have some training in, in Bible languages and Bible backgrounds. And so I sit down with some pretty technical tools and I, and I look through the passage in the original languages, Hebrew, Greek, that sort of thing. And, uh, and then I just sort of wait as I study backgrounds and I study uh, the, the passage in its original language for uh, uh, principles to emerge. And then I go, ah, there it is. Ah, there it is. And the Holy Spirit has been so faithful to me uh, in that process. But this last week, I did not do that. This last week, I approached the passage somewhat differently because after last week's sermon, I was really moved by the sermon. I don't know if you were, but I was. And I went home and I thought about it a lot. I listened to it probably four different times. I listened to it on several different speeds. You know, just listening to the message again, trying to get it down into my heart and trying to tell myself, preacher, live under your own preaching. And so as I was doing that, I was really struck that this week was one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. I really need to hear from God. I just didn't get out the Hebrew. I didn't get out the stuff. I, all I did was just immerse myself in the passage. I could say for a couple, three days, I just marinated on the passage. I listened to it in different Bible versions, on my audible Bibles, audio Bibles. I watched several different sermons on the passage. Uh, Bobby Jameson at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, who inspired me, and also Tony Evans at the end of listening to Tony Evans' sermons on it. Uh, I, I just was so fired up, I was ready to preach on Monday. And when I sat down on Tuesday in front of this passage and I began to read it, I'm telling you, man, I just had a profound, powerful encounter with God. Just, I realized the same God who has come to this young boy in the middle of the night and spoke to him is the same God who spoke to this boy when he was nine years old and called him into the ministry. And I said, yes. I realized it was the same God who in that moment was revealing himself to me in such a powerful way. And I was so touched by the passage. Let me tell you, there's a direct correlation between the word and the spirit. If you want more of the Holy Spirit in your life, the principle is this. Get in the word. More so, let the word get into you. Let the word get into you. Now, we have just come out of Judges and discovered that even though God sent deliverers, he hasn't much spoken to the nation through those deliverers. Most of their deliverances were local, just tribal. But now God is starting a national revival. By the time we get to chapter 5, we'll see that this is, this is a revival that's going on in Israel. And look at how it sums up. Actually, it gives us a summary of Samuel's calling in his life and his ministry in verses 19 through 21. It says, Samuel grew. The Lord was with him, which is the most important thing that could ever be true of you, that God is with you. And he fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a confirmed prophet of the Lord, and the Lord continued to appear in Shiloh, this holy place. 
because he, there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. Notice the connection there. Notice the Lord had appeared to Samuel. His presence was manifest among Samuel and his life because God revealed his word to him. And there is an inseparable connection between God's word and God's presence. Here how, here's how Paul put it in Colossians 3, 16. Man, I love this passage. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, among you, inside of you, richly. In all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. What does he tell us to do? Let the word of Christ dwell among you, dwell in you richly. Not impoverishedly, but richly. Not poorly, but richly. Now notice in a passage in which he uses exactly the verbatim language in Ephesians 5.18, what he calls this. He calls it being filled with the Spirit. How are you filled on a daily basis with the Holy Spirit? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Folks, when the Word of God dwells in us richly, we encounter the presence of the Lord more powerfully. And Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's corrupt priestly sons, they have religion, religion's form, but no power. They have mastered the artifice of religious service, but no substance, no heart, no presence, as we'll discover in chapter 4. The glory of the Lord is literally going to depart from the tabernacle. No glory. God's transforming presence has left the building. And there are few things more tragic than God having to leave a church because neither he nor his word are, any, are welcome anymore. And let me ask you a question, just a question. How rare was the word of the Lord in your life this week? How rare was the word of the Lord in your life this year or in your leisure, in your religious observance or in your heart? Number two, God's spirit opens our eyes to the truth. So where God's word abounds, God's presence resides, his presence, his manifest presence resides. Look at this curious detail about aging priest Eli. It said, Eli, verse 2, whose eyesight was failing. Now, that's not the only kind of sight he had that was failing. Eli's spiritual blindness mirrors the scarcity of divine revelations in Israel during his leadership. In contrast, Samuel is closely connected to the Lord. Look where Samuel is, is sleeping, right next to the ark of God, which is what? It's, the ark just means ritual box. In that culture, it's the same word that's used in the story of Noah's ark, right? They're both an ark. They both hold things that are sacred to God. And so in this ritual box, in this ark, this, this most sacred object in Israel's history, that's where he's sleeping. He's sleeping in close proximity to the holiest object in all of Israel. And the contrasts in the story between Samuel and Eli's family are evident, Samuel grows in wisdom while Eli's sons grow colder and stupider due to sin. Samuel faithfully serves 
And the tabernacle, whereas Eli's sons profane it, they cursed it, they blasphemed it. Samuel hears God's voice, but Hophni and Phinehas, they cannot even hear their own father's instruction and wisdom. Samuel obeys Eli repeatedly, while Hophni and Phinehas will not obey their father. While Eli is physically blind, he is actually spiritually without insight, without influence, without impact. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 23, he said, the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Yes, those are the worshipers that the Father is looking for. The Father seeks worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. You can't separate those two things. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus will tell the disciples who the Holy Spirit is, what his nature is. John 15 and 16, he says, when the counselor comes, who is the Holy Spirit? He's your counselor. He's your advocate. He's your comforter. The one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? He will testify about me, Jesus said. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Notice in this passage, what the Spirit does. He counsels and comforts and advocates. And He is the Spirit of truth who does what? Lead us into all truth. He's going to lead the disciples into all truth. And if you are being led into error, you are not being led by God. You're never being led by the Spirit because He never leads into error. Where the Spirit of the Lord is present, He opens the eyes of the blind And Eli is sitting there going blind in his own age. But the truth is, he's been spiritually blind for decades as to what's been happening under his roof. Personal renewal begins in the Word, and the Word and the Spirit turn on the lamp of the darkened mind. The Word and the Spirit turn on the lamp of the darkened mind in sin. And so is the word having a renewing effect in our minds? Is your heart being refreshed by the Holy Spirit as he leads you into worshiping in spirit and in truth? Number three, when God calls us first, initially, God only requires our availability, not our exceptional aptitude. Aren't you glad of that? Now, in 1 Samuel 3, 4, uh, verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 16, Samuel says this repeatedly. I am struck by this repeated statement, here I am, here I am. We see this phrase repeated several times. In 1 Samuel 3, 4, Samuel basically says, here I am, I'm ready, whatever you ask. What, What do you need from me? What do you need me to do? I have to tell you, as I studied this this last week, I was just so profoundly moved by by how many times in this passage, Samuel's reflex, his, his reflexive response is just, I'm here. I'm available. Just tell me what you want me to do. Remember God telling Moses that he would be Israel's deliverer? Now, if anyone had ever been disqualified from ministry, it was Moses. Moses was a murderer. He murdered a guy in cold blood and then buried his body in Las Vegas desert. Like, just buried him. Only Moses knew where that body was buried. And then he is exiled for four decades, 40 years, 
out in the wilderness. And let me tell you, I've been there. If you could see the southeastern wilderness, it's not, you and I think of a wilderness as, you know, trees and, you know, stuff, but it's not. There's nothing there. I can't imagine someone going out to Midian or going out to that part of the world and, and living for 40 years as a sheep herder. I mean, it is, it, it, is, it is difficult to even imagine how hard a life that is. And that's where he is. He's in exile. He's basically been in prison, away from Egypt and away from the halls of power and away from the palace of the Pharaoh. And then God calls him. God says, come on over here. I got something to tell you. And Moses is like, what's going on? And God says, you're going to be my deliverer. I'm going to deliver the people, my people from Pharaoh. And you're the guy I'm choosing. You're the guy who's going to do it. And Moses' response is, oh, sweet. No, that's not his response. His response is self-doubt, driven by self-doubt. What he says is, no, you, you for sure, whoever you are, you for sure have the wrong guy. Like, you, you definitely have the wrong guy. I cannot do what you just told me to do. And he said, but if I were to do it, like if I would do it, what is the miraculous sign you would give me to prove to Pharaoh that I'm your man, that you chose me? And God asked him a question that I think he asks all of us. What do you have in your hand? What's in your hand? And he says, a staff. He says, okay, I'll use that. Let's start there. Throw it on the ground. You see the principle. God doesn't start where you ought to be. God doesn't start with you where you're going to be. God starts with you where you are. And when he comes to you and he calls you, he just rifles through your pockets. He wants to know, what do you got on you? What did you bring? Because I'll start there and I'll use that. Now, Moses has no idea of all that God is going to provide. You and I know it. But at this moment, he doesn't know that God is going to provide a dry path through the middle of a sea, a column of fire to warm them in the howling winds of an unrelenting desert, a cloud to shield them from the punishing sun in the Sinai Peninsula, water, bread dropping out of heaven. Wow, military victories, wise counsel. He gives him organizational structure to organize and lead the nation well. And he raises up leaders from within Israel's midst. He raises up elders. Now, he does not know what God is going to do on his behalf. And the man that God is eventually going to make him, the only thing he knows right now is God is saying, are you available? Will you? Throw your staff on the, on the ground and see what I can do with what you have. God isn't looking for people of exceptional aptitude. Some of you are being held back by this. Rather, he's seeking people with exceptional readiness. Do you have this morning exceptional willingness and availability, even if you lack ability? Now, God cares about expertise. So if you, ha- if you are a brand new Christian, you for sure will not be on the elder board next year. When Paul came to the Corinthians, he said, I came as an expert builder, not a novice builder. God cares about expertise. He cares about growing us in our gifts and the things that he wants to bring into our life. He cares about that. But when he first calls you, he only requires your availability. When is the last time, let me ask you, when you said to the Lord, here I am, thy will be done. 
And some of you may be on the verge right now, on the verge of getting connected into community through our community groups and classes, but you don't know these people. You're new here, and you're just not sure. What is that going to look like if I take that step? And God may be calling you to do it. Some of you are on the verge of plugging into a ministry, but you're thinking, who am I? Who am I that I should help this church out? But God is calling you. It's going to take a while for Samuel to become the fierce. Listen, when, when we get to it, you're going to see this guy is fierce and he's fearless. Right now he's a little boy. And it's going to take a while for him to become the fierce and fearless prophet that he will be in later chapters. And God supplies, is going to supply every word, every instruction, everything he needs, even a new king, a new and faithful king after Saul. And all that is needed for, from him right now is to say, I'm willing. I'm available. I'm here. Number four, God's patience has a limit. Boy, if we learn anything from this passage, it's probably the, the thing that makes a lot of us very uncomfortable is that God is not forever patient with the sinner. God is not forever patient with the sinner. Now, we like to think that he is. Of course, God has unlimited patience. We can't actually exhaust his patience. But what we learn in this text is that there is a limit to how, how much God is going to call us. There's a point at which God doesn't do that anymore. Look at the message now that he tells little Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, verses 11 and 12, I'm about to do something in Israel that will cause everyone who hears about it to just quake in their shoes, just shudder. And on that day, I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. God confirms to Samuel that his previous prophecies from the unnamed and mysterious prophet in the previous chapter, that stuff is going to come to pass. He hasn't forgot about the judgment. And he reiterates this message to Samuel. Now, if you look at the content of what God reiterates, it's pretty clear uh, that this is a super heavy message to be getting as a 10-year-old kid. Like, can you imagine, like, this is your first encounter with God, and you're like, oh, God, the God of the universe, and God is like, I'm going to kill Eli's family. <laughs> and that's your message. This is pretty heavy stuff. Hear me well. I believe that so long as you are drawing breath on this planet, for the most part, so long as you are alive, there's hope. How many of you came to Jesus relatively late in life? And you didn't come to Jesus early in life. Aren't you glad that God was patient with you? Aren't you glad that God didn't give up on you? Are you glad that his mercies are new every morning? And here's what Paul says about the nature of God's love for the believer. Here's what he says in verses 37 through 39 of Romans 8. He says, for I am persuaded, I'm convinced, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, just there you go, nothing, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is he talking to? He's talking, go back to verse 28, he's talking to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, if you love God and you've been called according to his purpose, listen, that is true of you. 
God's love is never failing. It's unending. God has one relentless stance toward you, his love, to pour it all out on you in Christ. And that's what the Scripture teaches. And God says to Israel so patiently, here's what he says in the prophets. He says, all day long, I've held out my arms. I've held out my hands to an obstinate and stubborn people who will not repent, who will not confess their sins. And so God is the one who is holding out hope. God is the one saying, listen, as long as you're alive until I judge you, hope is there. God says to Israel, I have patience and long-suffering for you, but it's not going to last forever. So why is this relevant? Why do we bring this up? Because there are many of our worship songs, starting with some of the hymns, not all of them, but some of the hymns, and then our modern sort of praise song movement, which I think began with like Maranatha and Hosanna Integrity in the 70s and the 80s. And so a lot of our modern songs, once in a while you come across this idea that God's love for us is just endlessly patient. God's love for the sinner is just infinite. And that isn't true. Here's an example from a more recent modern praise song. Have you heard the song with these words? Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Have you heard this song? Now, now that is one of the most memorable, singable, poetic, beautiful songs I have ever heard. In fact, as I was writing this in my notes, I found myself as I was writing the rest of the sermon humming the song. Like that's how memorable it is. That's how, that's how well it sticks in your brain. It sticks in your mind. But of course it has false, false theology in it. Now I want to give the author of those words, the guy who wrote the song, the benefit of the doubt. If, if by reckless love he means from the perspective of a Pharisee in the Gospels, Jesus having dinner and having friends who were sinners probably seemed pretty religiously reckless, okay? If that's what he means, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm not a Pharisee, so I can't sing it. If what he means by never-ending is that there is a never-ending offer of salvation on the table for the sinner, I also cannot affirm that. Like Paul in in Romans 8, I can affirm that that is true for the believer, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, but I could not affirm that forever for everyone, right? And so the point is this, is that we have to be very careful about singing things that are not true about God. It is not true about God that he just is going to hold out the offer of salvation to you even in eternity until you come around. That's not going to happen. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us this, Hebrews 3, 12 through 15, watch out, be alert, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any, uh, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away. So what's the key to a heart that turns away from God? It's lazy and apathetic. It nurses secret sin, and it nurses unbelief. And that kind of heart that is doing that will lead you away. You will turn away from the Lord. That's the end result, he says, from the living God. Verse 13, but instead, the believer should encourage each other daily while it is still called today. So as long as you got today, you got a chance. 
As long as it's called today, as long as there is breath in your lungs and a thought in your mind, you have an opportunity to turn, to seek him, to walk according to his truth. So as long as it is called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception, for we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly and to the end the reality that we had at the start. He's saying this is the evidence of a true believer. The evidence of a true believer is that they do persevere. They find a way in the encouragement of the body to get there. And then in verse 15, he says, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel, he's talking about Israel, did in the rebellion in the desert. He's like, don't be like that. There's an end point to the invitation. And God's love isn't reckless. God's love is purposeful. God's love has been planned before the foundations of this world, before creation itself began. God has been planning this redemption plan, and it's perfect. It's a perfect plan. It's not a hodgepodge plan. It's not ad hoc. It's perfection. And he's been planning it since before the creation of the world. So when God comes calling, it requires what? An urgent response. Hophni and Phinehas exhausted God's patience. And his verdict in finality was not overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. Nope. It was judgment and condemnation for people who refused to repent. Let me put this question to us. Do we have a sense of urgency in our repentance before the Lord today? Or has apathy set in? Have we begun, as the Hebrew author says, to turn away from the living God by nursing secret sins that no one else knows about and not confessing and repenting? And living a life of repentance before the Lord, dragging those sins into the light of his cross to be forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness, right? Have we stopped seeking the encouragement that we need in the body of Christ to sustain our fervency in Christ? Number five, finally, Samuel chooses the fear of God over the fear of man. So now he gets this message about Eli, and Eli wants to know, what did the Lord God tell you? And you better tell me the truth. In verses 15 through 18, he says, Samuel lay down until the morning. Then he opened the doors of the Lord's house. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, here I am. Answered Samuel, there he is again. Here I am. What was the message uh, the Lord God gave to you? Eli asked, don't hide it from me. May God punish you and do so ever so severely if you hide anything from me that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and did not hide anything from him. You know how brutally honest a 10-year-old boy can be? (laughs) Trust me. I know three times in my life. And Eli responded, oh, well, he's the Lord. Let him do whatever he thinks is good. Good response. The priority and Samuel's fear is God, not man. Now, notice he is afraid of Eli. He is afraid. The text says right here in verse 15 that he was afraid to tell Eli what the Lord had spoken to him. But in the end, in the final analysis of his life and of his ministry at this point, he chooses to fear God and tell him the truth, tell him the prophecy. Many people fear awkward conversations. That is a conversation that might turn confrontational or cause someone extreme discomfort or maybe use some discomfort. And notice that Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but in the end, he fears God. 
And who in your life this week needs to hear the truth from you? Who needs to say something that they, they may not, or who needs to hear you say something to them that they really don't want to hear? Who in your life needs to hear the gospel from you? You say, well, I'm not at a place right now where I can share the gospel with that friend. I don't know if they would be open to the gospel from me. Well, great. Take them to the Look Up event tonight. Let Billy Graham's grandson, Will, preach the gospel or bring him to church next Sunday. Bring them somewhere where they can hear the gospel clearly proclaimed. Now, you may have worked hard to develop a cordial relationship with them, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a family member. But listen, at the end of the day, God, listen, God will use your friendship and your relationship to save people. But he's not going to save them because you're friendly. On the day of judgment, they are not going to be able to say to God, listen, I don't know Christ, but I know that Christian. <laughs> That's not going to work. That's not going to get them in. On the day of judgment, the only thing that will matter is whether or not their entirety of themselves, the entirety of their life is hidden behind the cross because God has poured his wrath out on the cross so that he wouldn't pour his wrath out and his judgment out on us. And so, yes, you've done a great job. God can use your relationships with those neighbors and those people that you've been sowing the seeds with. But eventually, they've got to hear the gospel. They've got to hear the truth. What is Samuel learning in all this? He's learning the lesson about the God who is kind and severe. The God of kindness and severity. And God has to teach him that lesson first contact. So let's put all this together today. Where God's word abounds, God abides. His manifest presence is. As we experience the fullness of his spirit, allowing the word of Christ to dwell richly in us. How rare was the word of the Lord in our lives this last week? I hope it's not as rare this week. And how's your eyesight? How's your spiritual sight? Is the spirit working to lead you into the truth? To open your eyes to the truth? And are you, are you waiting on the sidelines in terms of community or ministry or planting your life in the local church because you just think, I, I just need to arrive a little more? <laughs> like, I need to get that skill set? God right now doesn't care about your skill set. Right now, he just wants to know, will you say, here I am? Are you available? And is there a sense of urgency in your heart to respond to God's call to avail yourself? Or has apathy, unbelief, a life of secret sin clouded your fo focus and dulled your intensity for the Lord? And who in your life would need to hear the gospel communicated very clearly? If you need help sharing the gospel, come talk to one of us pastors or any of our elders. We will help you get a two-minute elevator pitch, a back pocket testimony. You can talk to the Hammonds. There are people in this church who can help you develop that. Will you pray with me? I'm going to call the worship team to come back up and the ushers to come forward as we prepare to take communion this morning. Father, we thank you for this powerful, <laughs> this powerful little story about you calling a boy, a young man, a lad. And you called him and anointed him and we're going to be astonished by the things that you do in his ministry. But right now, Lord, we are so grateful for this story in the Bible. We're so grateful for the lessons that you've allowed us to pull out of this story.
and to put right into the mix, right into our lives this morning. We praise you for that. And if you're here this morning and at any point during this message you felt the conviction of the Spirit, would you just tell the Lord that today? God, I feel convicted over this point and I pray that you would help me to walk out the door and be different than when I came in. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait till tomorrow, today. So long as it is called today and you got breath in your lungs, salvation is available to you. And we would say embrace Christ. Would you embrace Christ this morning? Would you embrace his work on a cross for you this morning? Would you do that? Do it today. Don't wait till tomorrow because you don't know that you have tomorrow. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Amen.